open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. Mark Wong Tower, Mark Wong Tower, this is Albatross 1 3, requesting permission to land. Over. I don't need a computer to tell me how to land a damn airplane. Six. Heads up display, check. Five. Lasers, check. Four. Particle beam, check. Three. Photon bolts, check. Two. Chair control, check. One. Let's do it. Broadcasting from a secret underground location somewhere in Moss Eisley, this is the Docking Bay 77 Podcast. Make yourself comfortable. The show is about to start. Happy Halloween! Hello, welcome, and boo! I am your host, Dayton Johnson, and welcome to... Halloween, October, and the Docking Bay 77 podcast. Yes, we are continuing our celebration of Halloween. Uh, many people enjoy it more than even Christmas, and I can understand it. Um, I know it's my daughter's favorite holiday, um, and she doesn't even like candy. Go figure. Um, yeah, here we go. Let me introduce our guests. Uh, my friend that scares people with his art, and that's a good thing. Happy Halloween, John. How's it going? I'm doing well. Happy Halloween to you and to everybody out there in podcast land. <laughs> and welcome, the guy that celebrates Devil's Night every night, Scott Hoffman. <laughs> <laughs> How did you know? You know these are these are allegations that just won't stick. <laughs> That's I right. Hope everybody there. had a safe Devil's Night this year, <laughs> right? <laughs> uh, so yes, uh, we are second week into our Halloween celebration. And if you didn't pick up on the clue, we are discussing the 1994 film starring Brandon Lee. Of course, I'm talking about The Crow. Devil's Night is upon us again. A little party, start a bunch of fires, make a little profit. Someone's dead. He can't come back, can we? That's what I thought. Are you referring to anyone in particular? You know what my daddy used to say? Every man's got a devil. You can't rest till you find him. Winked at me before he jumped out a fourth floor window like he had leads. This link between the land of the living and the realm of the dead. So kill the crow. Call, call, bang, I'm dead! The best the devil's done. I felt how awful goodness Hello, awful goodness. Okay, so 
I remember when this hit theaters, I was actually living in South Carolina at the time. And um, I remember working at a CD store. There was no more records at that time. Uh, CDs and cassettes. I remember when the soundtrack came out and when the movie hit theaters. Uh, John, uh, when and where did you see this? Uh, I saw it the year it opened. Um, I don't remember seeing it in like a big theater. I we had a we were we had the luxury here in Cincinnati of having a discount theater in a pretty cool mall at the time. It's like a buck fifty to see a movie, and I saw it there at um, what eventually it's demolished or being demolished now, but <laughs> it, it was it eventually became Cincinnati Outlets at the discount theater. Right. I remember. I remember. It was a time. Of, it was a time in my life where, yeah, you had moved to South Carolina. All my friends had abandoned me. So what did I do when I had free time? I went to the movies and I went and saw this. Fell in love with it instantly. There was a media play, oh, 500 yards from the theater. Yeah, right. I immediately marched to marched to media play. Walked up to the service desk and said, "I need the crow graphic novel, please." <laughs> Wonderful. All right, Scott, how about you? When and where did you see this? Um, well, I know that I saw this uh, opening weekend, um, my senior year of high school. I am pretty sure that I saw it at Eastgate Cinema. Um, right before that, got torn down. Um, <laughs> but I, as soon as I knew that this was happening, I knew that I wanted to see it because I had been going to. Uh, Parker's Records and Comics in in Loveland, I think at that point, and uh, you know, starting out at looking at the the Marvel and DC, the the heavy hitters, but then you go a little bit further down the shelf, and you see some of these indie comics and these new ideas, and the Crow uh, visually always uh, struck me when I would everyone I would see it on the shelf. Um, as soon as I knew they were making the movie, as soon as I knew that Brandon Lee was involved, absolutely wanted to see it, um, and then when I heard the news of what happened to him. I couldn't not see it opening weekend. Right now. I know um, I saw it on home video, uh, a combination of, because I wasn't so sure I wanted to see it in the theater um, because I really wasn't familiar with the, you know, the source material or anything like that. And um, I think I just didn't have the money. So I, so I just, I'll wait, I'll wait to rent it, you know, two bucks to rent it for a couple of days. That's what I'm going to do. But yeah, it's, uh, you know, it's one of those movies that uh, sticks in your brain. You know, once you see it, it doesn't go away. And uh, it has lots of, you know, with the tragedy of his death, it's kind of, you know, cemented itself into our pop culture, no matter how many times they try to uh, do the sequels or possibly reboot it or whatever. So people once believed that when someone dies, a crow carries their soul to the land of the dead. But sometimes, Something so bad happens that a terrible sadness is carried with it and the soul can't rest. Then sometimes, just sometimes, the crow can bring that soul back to put the wrong things right. So, uh, John, why don't you give us a little bit of history on the source material? Well, The Crow originally appeared on the back cover of a comic called Dead World Number 10. The cover was done by Obar, James O'Barr, who's also known as J. O'Barr. Uh, Crow was a four-issue limited series, and that was originally all it was. Um, he later added to it with a small little like backstory and a caliber Christmas issue. The story was called Atmosphere. It was just a couple pages long. 
Um, from there, it's been, you know, the rights have been bought multiple times and published from Tundra Press, Kitchen Sink Press, London Night Studios. It eventually made its way to IDW. Um, along the way, it stopped at Image, Image Comics. Todd McFarlane was involved with what was more of a direct, like, sequel to the movie, not a retelling of the Crow story. Um, the, the tragedy behind the Crow story is that in 78, Obar had enlisted in the Marines, and just prior to his enlisting in the Marines, his fiance, a lady named Beverly, was killed by a drunk driver on the way to pick him up. <laughs> Jeez. Um, while he was stationed in Germany around 1981, he began working on the outline and the artwork that would eventually become The Crow. He was an illustrator for the Marines drawing like hand-to-hand combat manuals huh. and, and stuff like that. So and you can see that in his art. It's very, it, it's very, it, it's very like illustrative in the, like it looks like something you would see in one of those manuals. Um, he, he's lived, he's lived a very difficult life. The man grew up as an orphan, lost his fiance lost what he considered one of his best friends in Brandon and the tragedy that took place on the set. Um, but, you know, through it all, he has survived. Uh, I recently reread The Crow. They released a definitive edition, which contains all the back stuff that he had written that was originally not in The Crow. Um, it's put in order. Um, I highly recommend that book. It's a beautiful book. Um, some of the artwork is a little dated. It, it is, you know, it's got that night at early 1980s feel. You know, the crow does not look like Brandon Lee. He looks a little bit more like the Goblin King from Labyrinth with the hair. Um, but you know, um, he does. He's got that. He's got that hairstyle. But that's what it was at the time. You know? Right. And, right. Um, you know, it's continued on um, through it out. You know, throughout the years, you know, the crows appeared in some other books. It's never been, to my knowledge, it's never been Eric ever again. Um, when Brandon died, Eric died with him. All right. Thank you, John. Uh, Scott, some production history. Yeah. So um, in kind of looking into this, kind of the segue from the um, the comic uh, history of this, um, it's actually one of the, if I'm not mistaken, uh, it's one of the first kind of independent, non-Marvel, non-DC uh, story to make it to the big screen and be a splash. Now, arguably, uh, TMNT came out in 1990, but I think tonally, this is when um, it really takes people to that distant end of the shelf that I was talking about right. um, to explore some of the, you know, beyond the men in tights. Um, it's the same year that we get movies like uh, Time Cop and The Mask, uh, some Dark Horse titles that make it there. Right. Um, but I think it definitely set a tone for some of the movies that followed. Um, it opened the door for things like barbed wire and judge dread, depending on how you feel about those spawn. <laughs> um, and I think it's, it's definitely something that opened the door for things like mystery men and even blade. I would right. say uh, tonally has a, a lot of, um, a lot of precedent that was set for this one directed by Alex Proyas. The script took two years to write switching between uh, the original writer, John Shirley, and David J. Shaw, uh, who finished the script. Um, according to James O'Barr, um, a studio exec in trying to bring this film to life, once suggested signing Michael Jackson for the lead role. Well. 
Yeah. And Obar <laughs> laughed in his face, but it was a joke. And I'm, I'm not sure what kind of movie that was intended to be, if they were going to make it a musical or if it was, you know, Michael's turn into dramatic acting or what, but I, I think he, he made the right call not going there. Yeah. Um, obviously this is a, a breakthrough movie for Brandon Lee, um, who obviously is the son of Bruce Lee and Linda Lee Caldwell, um, his third American film. He was actually on the, the, his career was starting to take off uh, in several ways. He was asked to fa- play his father in Dragon, the Bruce Lee story, a role that would eventually go to Jason Scott Lee. Right. Uh, but he turned that down to Star on the Crow. He earned the lead role with impressive acting skills and physicality that beat out Johnny Depp, Christian Slater, and River Phoenix as contenders for the lead. Um, apparently, at one point, Cameron Diaz was even up for the role of Shelley, um, which I, I don't think any of those were really the right fit. But he was actually signed for a sequel to 1992's Rapid Fire. Uh, he was going to star in a movie called Simon Says with Angela Bassett. And when he passed away, the script was rewritten into 1995's Die Hard with a Vengeance. Oh, okay. No way. Connection there. Wow. Um, and the Wachowskis uh, had him as their original choice to play Neo in The Matrix. Which oh, would have wow. Been a very interesting movie. Oh, yeah. It would have been nice. Um, and Stan Lee actually had some conversations with him about doing uh, an early iteration of a Shang-Chi uh, film or series with him. Man. So kind of a glimpse at where he was going and people really starting to take notice of him on a daily basis when he was going through uh, the process of, of becoming um, Eric Draven. Uh, he underwent more than an hour to reapply the makeup every day uh, using a stencil to recreate the lines between shots. I know that the, that James O'Barr has said that he was very impressed with how much Brandon was was honoring the the staying true to the comic, staying true to the uh, the character of Eric, um, and they were very happy with with production. But unfortunately, on March thirty first, nineteen ninety three, more than with more than three days left of filming for Brandon, he was shot in an accident on set. Actor Michael Messi was to hire a, a forty four Magnum with uh, loaded with blanks, but one of the dummy bullets stuck in the barrel. So when it was later used with blanks and the dummy bullet still in the chamber or in the in the barrel, um, it ended up striking him in the abdomen. In the abdomen, uh, nobody knew he was actually shot until they finished filming, um, and he passed away unfortunately after six hours of surgery. Um, the Michael uh, Michael the the actor that unfortunately was involved in the accident spent a year devastated and struggling with whether to return to acting, and was haunted by the accident for years until he he passed away in 2016. So obviously yeah. there's a, a big mark of this movie with uh, with tragedy. But after Brandon passed away, Paramount Pictures, who originally had the, uh, the film, uh, dropped the picture. And Miramax picked it up to finish production, investing an additional $8 million to digitally insert his face in key scenes and finish the movie, which is the first time uh, this type of tech was used so much in a movie, which would actually come in handy later down the road. There were certain scenes. Um, one of the things that really impressed me was that they uh, they cut costs with certain shots of Detroit by filming it in miniature, including the opening shot of the movie. I think it's a, a great use of of miniature work in in this movie to to help bring Detroit to life. Right. Um, the movie ended yeah. up earning more than double the production costs. Um, it grossed more than ninety four million on a twenty three million dollar budget, um, and uh, found a lot of popularity in home video and subsequent releases. In terms of the the profits from the movie, uh, James Obar actually donated most of the money that he received for the movie uh, to charity, which I think is a great thing to do. Wow. 
Yeah. And he bought his mom a car, if I'm not mistaken, and himself a surround sound system and everything yeah. else. We've <laughs> and that was it. Uh, just to think of where um, he would have, Brandon Lee would have gone, you know? And yeah. I'm kind of curious. Uh, so I know they had to rewrite, you know, I know he only had three days left, but I'm kind of curious what scenes had to be ditched completely because he was gone. There was, um, um, there were some scenes. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to step on your oh, toes there. Go. You got it. There was a character involved called the skull cowboy who plays a small role in the book. He's basically the crow or Eric's guide. He's a narrator. Um, they eliminated that character 100% from the movie, even though they had brought an actor in and I can't remember the gentleman's name, but he's famous for the Hills have eyes. Yep. Um, um, and he was the skull cowboy. They had actually done a screen test, had the costume ready. It was all ready to go. So some stuff like that. And I, I had read that they basically had to rewrite an extensive part of the script because even though with three days left to shoot, you wouldn't think there was that much, but apparently they, they did have to kind of piece together what they had to get a little bit more of a coherent story together to finish, to round out the movie. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, Scott. Sure. You have one chance to live. Look, man, take anything you want. Thank you. Take anything! Now you're going to tell me where to find the rest of him to this little party pal. Let's get they all hang out the pit. Little T-Burst, little potato heads hang out there. Fun boy, he lives here upstairs, all right? All right, let's move on to, uh, let's lighten the mood. And uh, <laughs> so, uh, John. What works for you in this movie? Give us something. There's very little that doesn't work. For me <laughs> in this, movie. Um, this is one of my favorite movies of all time. Um, honestly, what works for me is a lot of the subtle little nuances that some of which we already mentioned, but the opening, the opening with the miniatures of Detroit. Um, when I first saw it, I'm like, Oh man, this looks cheap. But after subsequent viewings and everything, it, it does exactly what it should do. And it brings you into a world. It brings you into a world of make-believe. It, it opens up this world. It's, it's very, it reminds me a little bit of the opening in Beetlejuice now where they pan over the town and right. it goes from town to miniature, you know, and you can tell it's a miniature. And in, in this too, you can tell it's a miniature, but it doesn't, you know, on subsequent viewings for me, it didn't detract. I really started to understand what worked in it. Yeah. Um, they had a very tight budget, like you said. I think it was only eighteen million dollars initially, and they were trying to make a thirty million dollar movie on an eighteen million dollar budget. Um, so there's, you know, I, I want to get into Brandon's performance because that's what really makes it for me. But I'm sure we'll get into that a little bit later. So we'll start. We'll start with the opening and the, and and go from there. To kind of follow that, I love the the overall look of the movie. It's it's. Um, Considering, I mean, yeah, we you mentioned that we had Turtles, uh, the Turtles movie, but this is the first one that kind of gave us that real comic book look. Yeah. You know, I mean, I know we got it in '89 with Gotham City and Tim Burton's Batman, but they, um, with this, kind of took that and made it even more gothic and made it, you know, at first you're like seeing the miniatures of Detroit, but you're like, but yeah, kind of, it's real. You know, we know where it takes place, but at the same time, you're like. Okay, it's a different world though. It's like an alternate reality Detroit because of how it looks. And I I love the whole look of this movie. The buildings, the 
the you know the alleyways the you know the water you know which of course plays into the you can't rain all the time and it's just i love the look uh, it's just beautiful absolutely beautiful does anybody know if there's ever been a release of this in black and white no i remember was, seeing that there was an intention to do it it in was black intended and white. to be filmed in black and white with the flashback sequences being in color right um yeah i would that would be cool to see that i would i would oh yeah give i would give my left arm to see a black and white <laughs> version of this film. yeah <laughs> i don't use my left arm that well i draw with my right so we're good <laughs> all right no, I, I totally agree the, like the use of the miniatures especially that opening shot how it pans through this city it, it doesn't even look like a real city i know that there i don't think they really say detroit all that often in the movie like they say it's just kind of assumed right right like you get little drops like you motor city mofos and things right. like that right right um that that great panning of uh the city on fire right in through that um round window uh in the opening was a beautiful way to to start the movie uh and make it really like nothing we've ever seen before especially in a comic book adaptation uh all right scott something you like well before we get into the cast because there's a lot of it um i'll <laughs> say uh both soundtracks oh yes. god yes um, yes i remember <laughs> walking around the campus of uc um <laughs> uh, alternating between them um i think the uh burn by the crow uh, but oh, lord burn by the cure yeah uh you're close stands out <laughs> as, as a fantastic uh, song, especially for that first transformation scene when he's coming back to the apartment and putting on the makeup. Oh, yeah. yeah, I got to admit, I'm not a fan so of The Cure, well. but I really like that song. It's probably I, my favorite Cure song. Yeah, it's really, really good. Yeah. No, I was just going to say a lot of uh, big names on there. Stone Temple Pilots, Violent Femmes, Nine Inch Nails. Um, bands that I had never listened to before, and it was kind of my gateway to them. It's kind of like with uh, Susie and the Banshees with their song on uh, Batman Returns. I was just like, whoa, who is this? Right. Um, a great way to to introduce a lot of people to them. But then also the other soundtrack uh, that was really the score. Um, I remember specifically the tracks of... Uh, Brandon playing on the the rooftop, right? Uh, yeah. Those two guitar tracks, I just those are haunting. I love those things. Okay, so actually, since you brought up the soundtrack, uh, do you have a favorite song? I need to mention the Cure. Is that your favorite? Because that's mine off the record. Probably too. Burn. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. All right. What about you, John? Uh, I would be Burn or Nine Inch Nails cover of Dead Souls. Okay.
See, I really dig that. Um, I got to admit, when the soundtrack came out, and I remember flipping over the CD and looking at the people on there, um, there was quite a few that I recognized, and there was quite a few I was like, uh, who the hell is this? And um, I will say that later, uh, especially after seeing the movie, because I will say that the songs they chose and the placement in the movie is very good. You know, it's one of those that listening to the soundtrack now, I can picture the scenes, you know, it's and they're they're very good choices. Now, I do have a question for you guys. Is there an artist from that time frame that you wish would have been on the soundtrack? I don't know. I don't know either. That's a good question, but I can't think of anybody that would. I mean, I know, I know, and watching the watching the film with the commentary the other day that the director had mentioned that his his vision was to not even have a score, but to have like you know rock music and stuff for the entire soundtrack, and that be the score. Well, I know he was Um, a big fan of Joy Division. I know he was trying to get them, and then they weren't able to do it or they chose yeah. not to well the, yeah they were because i think nine inch nail songs is a cover it is of right Joy Division song. that's correct um you know i i could see a nirvana or an alice in chains working in this yeah see yeah. i would pick alice in chains because i think their his voice and their overall sound would have worked anywhere it's got to be something somewhat absolutely it's got to have a somber feel to it you know there's a there's a pantera song on the soundtrack that i like but i don't really feel works that well actually i don't even remember hearing it in the movie but right just it's a little too i love pantera but it's a little too much for this type of film i think right yeah i know that one song that um gets stuck in my head is uh after the flesh by my life with a thrill kill girl thrill kill yeah. cult yeah I'll that's easy for you to say today yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but it's it that's a song that just keeps going on in my head as i'm thinking about this movie But it, I mean, it works incredibly well in the scene it's in. It's, oh yeah, absolutely! Yeah, it's yeah. awesome. And there's every every time you hear a song within the context of the movie, it works. So it, it works incredibly well. Yeah, it's one of those situations where, um, like I said, it made me like the songs more because I'm not a Nine Inch Nails fan, but they definitely work in the confines of the soundtrack and confines of this movie. Um, and I like I said, I'm not a Cure fan, but I do dig that song. So. Uh, but yeah, yeah they, they wrote that song specifically for this movie from right. what I understand too. Right. Right. Okay. Uh, John, something else you like, you know, we, we mentioned it earlier. I don't think there's a bad casting throughout this entire movie. I have um, one, but that's okay. You have one. Really? <laughs> I, okay. I have one. All right. I think I know who it might be. And there, there's, there's some that are weaker than others, but I think they work within, context of the film um there's one or two characters i feel one in particular i felt probably could have been left out entirely um but i mean again we've talked about the visuals the rain the i I don't know i just you know there's there's so much in my mind there's so much right with this film right um 
okay, this isn't we, this isn't really the actings per se, or we won't get into like talking about actors per se. But <laughs> the voiceovers that are used, especially mm-hmm. especially um, Sarah's voiceovers, which were originally going to go to the Skull Cowboy and were rewritten for her character after Brandon's death. You know, she sets the tone for this movie from the you know right from the get go when she tells you the origin without really telling you the origin. Right. And then she, and she bookcases the, you know, she bookends the movie so well at the end, you know, it's, it's really, really remarkable. And the fact that, you know, that character is not in the comic book. No. Okay. There does not exist in the comic book. It's a girl named Sherry that Eric meets when he's on his quest for vengeance. Um, he has no relationship to her. She just, walks up to him while he's on the he walks up to her while she's sitting on the doorstep because her mom's in the house banging fun boy and doing (laughs) morphine and she's and he tell he can tell that she's lonely and she's scared and i i think that's the other thing that this speaks to this movie this movie's about vengeance but it's more about it's more about love and compassion. It really is. You see right. that in you see that in the way that Eric and Shelly care for Sarah and um, the way they care for one another. So yeah, we'll go with that for right now. All right. All right. Yeah. And since, since you mentioned her, I, I would say actually one of my highlights is Rochelle Davis as Sarah. I really uh, liked her performance. Definitely liked her, her voiceover at the beginning and the end. Um, I like the character and I'm, it's nice to know that she wasn't an original. I just like the fact that, you know, she, she has a, you know, she loses two of her best friends and then has a, a shitty mom, <laughs> you know, there's no two ways to put it. Uh, and yeah, but she still, she survives, you know what I mean? She skates around the city. She, you know, is friends with a cop and, and I like her. She's, she's one of the highlights for me in this movie. And unfortunately, she didn't do a whole lot after this. In fact, her IMDb page doesn't even have a picture of her. <laughs> so, yeah, I'm like, she's okay. changed her. She's changed her name. Oh, I believe. All right, that I didn't know. Or, or that, or the name she goes by as an actor is not her birth name. All right, one of the two. But yeah, she she's not done anything since she's she is mentioned. She's been some comic book conventions and stuff, from what I understand. And she's mentioned she's still really scarred from. Brandon's death. Um, she didn't know him very long, but she claims that they became really, really close friends. The only thing she didn't like about him was he didn't really care for dogs, but she had <laughs> vowed to get him one for a wedding present. <laughs> uh, all right, Scott. Well, I'll, I'll pile on to that and say, I think I was thoroughly impressed with uh, Rochelle Davis from my first viewing of this. I think she's, uh, she does a great job of kind of um, stricken an emotional thread through the movie and making it not so much about totally vengeance, but, you know, salvation and, um, and love, like you said, uh, I think her voice worked perfectly for the voiceover. Um, Oh yeah. I feel like in this viewing, I saw a lot of, um, parallels with, uh, Newt in aliens. Right. Um, just the way that she, you know, when she reacts to Eric and, um, Shelley's death, uh, and she's, talking with uh officer albrecht she she has the reaction where she's crying but it's not something where it you know you would think that 
a kid her age observing this, you know, witnessing this this crime for people that she uh, loved and was so close to uh, would be absolutely, you know, in a fetal position on the ground. Um, but it's kind of like the uh, the Killmonger character in Black Panther. You know, it kind of seems like her reaction is like, yeah, this stuff happens all the time around here. Right. And you just you're so sad for her. Um, yeah. But especially the fact that, you know, when Eric completes his mission of, of vengeance and, and takes out uh, T-Bird's gang, he he still doesn't go back. And it's kind of like um, it's like Ripley having to go back for Jonesy or Ripley having <laughs> to go back for um, Newt. Right. Um, that it's like the one more mission that he has to do, but ultimately it leads him to top dollar so that he can take the entire organization down, which is, which is great. I love the fact that she balances um, a very serious movie with some, some lighter moments that don't pander, that don't make her seem like I'm a kid. She's just another person, uh, right. especially like the, um, the hot dog stand. <laughs> um, I love her whole dialogue there. I think her acting is just, fantastic and i'm glad that she was in this and i'm glad that she got the role of the the voiceover because i think it really tied everything together yeah i i always find it funny watching her trying to eat that hot dog she keeps kind of look, trying to take a bite looks at it again like how am i going to get this thing in in here it just cracks me up well because the uh, person got the uh, he got the onions in the wrong place right yeah right right they make you fart big time right exactly <laughs> yeah you, you can tell some there's some nuances in her performance where you can tell she's the, the character's dying to be a kid, but like you said, you know, when Eric and Shelly die, it's kind of like, well, this is just another shitty day in my shitty life. So, right, right. you know, I'm going to put up this tough exterior and move on. She lets it down a little bit with Albrecht, which is nice to see. Right. The hot dogs in. And, you know, and then, you know, when Eric eventually saves Darla and, yeah, the, you know, they have their, their reconnection. You, you see that, you see, as a matter of fact, it's one of the few times there, there's only like three three people I can think of smiling throughout the course of this movie. It's not a flashback. And it's it's those two when they're smiling, when they're when Darla's making eggs for her. Right. And then Eric sees the kids running down the street for trick or treat and he laughs at them. Right. Yeah. You know, that's, yeah. that's the only time I can recall anybody smiling in this movie. All right. So I have a question. How do you like your eggs? Well, um, she likes hers over easy. So easy, exactly. You know. Yeah. I was going to say that. Let's see, I like them scrambled, but that's just me. Anyway, all right. I was going to say deviled. <laughs> I love deviled eggs too. Like, <laughs> bad pun. Uh, okay, so I uh, I love Ernie Hudson in this movie. Yes, um, it's great. I kind of wish he was a cop in my neighborhood. You know, what I mean, yeah. although yeah. I wish he wouldn't. You know, it's like every scene he's got a cigarette in his mouth. Every scene, I'm like I know it was early '90s, but man. It's like he just kind of carried over the habit from Ghostbusters. <laughs> the, the interesting thing is Albrecht is a very minor character in the book. Really? He's hot. He, yeah. There is another captain or another police officer named Captain Hook, which is a reference to a Joy Division song. From right. Anderson. Um, and he plays a major role in it. But when they made the film, they used Albrecht and kind of merged the two of them together. Thank God they did because we got an incredible performance out of Ernie. Yeah. 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 Agreed. And there's, there's, there's some, there's some heart there. These two characters in particular, I feel are almost the heart of the movie. They're, they're the one thing that keeps the movie almost grounded in some reality. And for a superhero movie, especially like a supernatural superhero movie to be grounded in reality, is kind of a tough thing to do. Yeah. 
True. Well, I think they had great chemistry. I think there was some uh, great dialogue between them uh, yeah. that really humanized Eric. He wasn't just back from the dead and just focused on wiping people out. I mean, he made a lot of jokes and puns when he was killing some of the people. <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah. But yeah. they had such great chemistry when they were working uh, together, um, especially that scene where he kind of first meets him and he says, well, I'm dead. And yeah. I say, I move. You're right. I was, like, Ooh. Um, <laughs> I, was, I was getting kind of the sense this time that I was watching it, um, kind of a diehard Al Powell kind of vibe. <laughs> <laughs> where you yeah. have the yeah. the the main protagonist the the action star that's going through all these kind of things but then you get him caught in these human moments with a beat cop with um somebody who used to have a um a higher rank or a different position but then was busted down and then is surrounded by other people in the you know on the on the side of the law that are apparently incompetent or unwilling to to chase down <laughs> what he's doing exactly. um and it just it's that friendship that i think was was really great in this movie and it was great to see ernie in this kind of a role um i had seen him in other things before this i was kind of surprised to hear that this was not his first time being involved in a comic adaptation i was right. delighted to discover that he was the voice of cyborg in 1985's superpowers galactic guardians cartoon <laughs> I would have I, that. <laughs> Cyborg and Teen Titans are some of my favorite characters. Oh, wow. I love that fact. I'm just like, oh my God. That's that a deep Ernie cut. Hudson. Nice. <laughs> um, but I think it really helped to, you know, also give Ernie more, more range and yeah. more notability for, you know, kind of an iconic character that's constantly associated with this movie. I ain't heard nobody, man. I don't fucking know you, man. What the fuck you want, man? Why don't you tell me a story? A man and a woman in law a year ago. <laughs> Motherfucking mom. Listen! I'm sure you'll remember. You killed them on Halloween. All right, so I have a question. Um, as far as uh, the gang um, and the revenge that uh, Eric goes after him, now, out of the four, uh, do we have a favorite revenge killing? Because I do. Oh, yeah. Hmm. All right, John, what's your favorite? Uh, my favorite. Actually, I have I have two favorites, but they're for different reasons. <laughs> All um, right, well, let's let's hear I, it. <laughs> okay, I, I the first interaction that Eric has with Tintin right. in the alley, mm -hmm. there's this thing where he grabs him and pushes him up against the wall, and the line is, "Listen, I'm sure you'll remember." And there's this catch in Eric's voice. And you you hear him. He's almost crying. Yeah. He's so yeah. He's so angry. And I I'd never caught it before until watching it recently. And I'm like, my God, I don't know if that was intentional or not, but it's brilliant that it happened. But my my favorite is his entire interaction with Fun Boy. Yeah. Um, because in the comics, Fun Boy strikes a deal with Eric. And he's going to give him information. And then Eric kind of pulls a Terminator, or and I'm sorry, not a Terminator, but a commando. And, you know, like, you know, you give me what I want and I, I'll, I'll kill you last. Well, he doesn't promise to kill him last, but he promises to kill him painlessly. <laughs> so, so that whole interaction that he has with Fun Boy, it's just, you know, I, I had read somewhere or listened to something that somebody said they, they attributed 
Brandon's performance to being somewhat hammy when he was the crow. And I, and I disagree because I think, you know, that he's crazed, you know, he's, he's been dead for a year um, and he kind of lets himself go. He's very much like the comic version of the crow in the scene with fun boy, in my opinion, because he just, it's, it's borderline Heath Ledger Joker. You know, I'm just going to let it all hang out. And well, he's toying be, with them. He's toying exactly. with all of them. But the, the really cool thing about it is, is Darl is there and he could have taken out fun boy and left, but Eric knows Darla's ties to, to Sarah. Right. Yeah. And he takes it and he reverses the flow of the morphine out of her arm, which is an incredibly powerful scene in my opinion. Um, you know, and that speech, you know, mother is the name for the, for God on the lips of all children. And it's, it, it's interesting that they never really get a chance to touch it on the film, but they allude to it slightly is that when Eric is off mission, when he's not tracking down the gang, who, by the way, are a little bit different in the comic. And we'll, we'll, I'm sure we'll have a chance to talk about that in a few minutes. <laughs> um, he loses his invulnerability. So he becomes, he, he becomes human almost to a point. Now there, you can argue that he's got special powers because he's pumping the morphine out of her arms, but he does become human because he's, he's looking out for someone else. He, he realizes that the, the scope of vengeance goes beyond him and it affects others. And by taking fun boy out, Darla is going to have to, Darla would probably, had he not done anything, Darla would have OD'd right after fun boy. No, I'm sure of it. You know, yeah. And this is, he's not going to let that, he's not going to let what happened to him and Shelly happen to Sarah. And it's, I just think it's incredible. You know, he's got some one lines with Shelly or with fun boy with, uh, you know, you know, Jesus walks into a motel and he's <laughs> the innkeeper three nails, which, you know, I, I've had, I love I had that friend, joke. <laughs> yeah. I had a friend I was watching that with and he was like, man, that's kind of blasphemous. And like, yeah, but if you realize the context of it, he's basically saying to fun boy, you know what? Pray all you want. God's not going to help you with this. <laughs> you know, your ass is mine, you know, and it's, he never gives anyone. He, he, he kills Tintin with knives, fun boy with drugs, T word with fire, you know, in, in anything they did to him, he returns to them. Right. You know, so I don't know. I just, the, the interaction with fun boy is my favorite. All right. What about you, Scott? Uh, so just so I'm clear, it would only count if we're talking about Fun Boy, Skank, Tintin, or T-Bird. Right? Yeah, the, the original four, yeah. Okay. Um, of those, I would probably have to give it to David Patrick Kelly as T-Bird. Right, um, me too. That's I my think choice. his acting in those, oh, yeah, that is in incredible those scenes, um, the way that he's kind of negotiating with them to to try to get out of it, and you can see him kind of like hatching a plan with his eye movement and things like that turn that all the way around to when he's finally duct taped to the car and he's <laughs> oh like, God. you know, twitching in the scene. He's like, what do you want? What do you want? Like yelling at him. And um, the, the terror in his eyes as he knows what's going to happen when his, you know, head's being kind of taped to the, the seat. Um, I think that was really well done all yeah. the way through to uh, the, the scary looking police photo 
of showing him fused to his seat in the car, um, implying that, you know, he, um, before his car crashed into the river, if that was going to kill him, it was the explosion. And you can see his mouth open. So he, he clearly died screaming. So it's like, ah, that's, I mean, it's, it's horrifying. <laughs> it's horrifying violence, but, uh, David Patrick Kelly does such a good job in that, in that scene. Um, so I really got to give him credit for that. Yeah. Agreed. You don't come back, man. They don't come back. Yeah. He's just losing his shit. <laughs> yeah. And for, I don't know why I never realized that's the same guy from the warriors. Warriors come out to play. I never, well, yeah. I never realized yeah. that. Yeah. I don't know why. <laughs> and 48 hours. I was yes. in that role too. Yeah, that's yeah. true. Right. I know you. I know you. I knew I knew you. I knew I knew you. But you ain't you. You can't be you. We put you through the window. There ain't no coming back. This is the really real world. There ain't no coming back. We killed your dad. There ain't no coming back. There ain't no coming back. There ain't no coming back. The best the devil stood. I felt how awful goodness is. I felt how awful goodness is. Any other things you guys want to mention? Uh, good things, acting, other people? Because I know we're probably going to talk about uh, Michael Wincott because, you know, you know, he's, he's devil incarnate. <laughs> well, I, I gotta say on a, on a, on a similar topic. Um, I think the, the scene at Gideon's pawn shop, even though it doesn't oh, result yeah. in somebody's death yeah. is yes. another place where we see so much range where he sits there, you know, uh, crisscross applesauce kind of going through the rings, like, no, no, no. With his eyes um, closed. And then it hits him when he yeah. hits Shelly's ring. Um, yeah. I think, John Polito does a great job in that scene. And it's another place where we see that kind of taunting di- uh, dialogue from, from Eric. Um, yeah. It is interesting, you know, as you're, you're talking about the, the character, um, the same kind of thing had crossed my mind about Wolverine the other day, but the, the main power in his power set is inherently passive because yeah. it's just healing. Um, it's, you know, absorbing memories through touch. It's, you know, expressing the morphine, things like that. It's inherently passive power set, but the person that uses it um, is using it to, you know, to his own ends. Um, and it's really the person behind it that is that is kind of driving it. I just thought it was kind of interesting. But I, I mentioned that because the um, as we're starting to get into Michael Wincott, um, his use of that power on top dollar, on top of that church. Right. Um, was such a yeah. smart way to use that power. Um, it's not just, you know, he kills him with the sword or he happens to be better with the sword or does a, a fancy kick or anything else like that. It's the, you know, channeling the 30 hours of pain into him. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's another place where you can hear his voice kind of break. A little yeah. Bit. yeah, that's true. Um, it's a great idea to use that. Yeah. It, it, it's interesting that it differs a little bit from the book and the fact that top dollar is not the main guy in the book. T-Bird is. Oh really? <laughs> um, yeah, and they're not—they're not an organized crime ring. They're basically just a bunch of druggies. They happen upon Eric and Shelley, who have broken down on the way back from the beach, celebrating their engagement. And they 
rape Shelly there along the side of the road and shoot Eric in the head. Shelly dies at the scene and Eric is the one that lives for 30 hours in the hospital. Um, So they kind of flip it. But yeah, there's something about that transference of pain. And it kind of hit me when you were talking about it. I mean, this movie is really a metaphor for the stages of grief because you eventually get to that point where you let go of the pain. Right. And you, and you start to live and, and Eric does that, you know, with top dollar who, like you already mentioned, Dayton is <laughs> just a badass man. Some of the it's best like, hair, some of the best hair in a movie ever. Right. And voice. Right. Oh, oh yeah, God, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it's like his introduction. He's sitting there and, on his bed and Byling's taking a shower and they go over talking and, and she goes, is she asleep? And he rolls her over and she's dead. He goes, I think we broke her. Like, it doesn't matter that this woman's dead in bed with them. It's like, um, yeah. okay, really? And that's like a, that's a terrifying introduction of a character, you know, and uh, just weird. And his sister, right? Sure. She's his, your sister. <laughs> that's just weird too. And it's just, uh, yeah. Great voice, great hair, great villain, you know? Yeah. Oh Yeah great villain all the way through the movie you know speaking of great voices can we just talk about tony todd for a minute (laughs) i love seeing him anytime he's in anything um all the way from Candyman to Worf's brother kern in next generation that's actually the first thing that when we last time we watched it uh, my wife saw him with me and goes now i want to watch Candyman. damn it (laughs) (laughs) right Well, it's, it's Halloween. We can watch Candyman. Sure, let's watch Candyman. That's right. Yeah, but his voice is just iconic. I love seeing him in any role that he's involved with. Yeah, he's a nice, um, I guess, lieutenant. You know, he's a nice, uh, you know, he's a good character. Um, I only have a couple of complaints, but we'll get those later as far as some of the characters. But I like him. He, uh, the, the, it, there's sometimes when you have villains in movies, they're just kind of, um, not scary and not frightening and they're they're stupid and now granted t-bird's gang are definitely stupid they have their strengths uh the scene where they're you know taking shots and you know swallowing bullets <laughs> i'm just like what the hell is wrong with these guys uh but they're good at what they do they're good at killing they're good at you know burning stuff and whatever and uh top dollar is definitely um good at being a villain so yeah yeah every and, uh, every time i watch this i always think of disney's three musketeers with him in that too mm, yeah so you know with an eye patch and just as just as crappy of a human being as he is in this one so yeah i was hard pressed to think of a movie where he was a nice guy so they'll have to get in here gentlemen The Avenger, the killer of killers. Nice outfit. Not sure about his face, though. I just want him. Well, you can have him. Well, I see you have made your decision. Now let's see you enforce it. Ah, oh, this is already boring the shit out of me. Kill him! 
Anything else? Any other positive things you guys want to say before I ran on the parade and <laughs> have some negative uh, things to say? <laughs> well, who wants to talk about Brandon first? Because I feel like there's more that has to be said about Brandon. Uh, there's, I don't think there's enough in my mind that can be said about Brandon in this role. Um, yeah. You know, you mentioned the the makeup, and I had seen something where he did that, in, like you said, he did that himself. And if you watch the makeup throughout the course of the film, it degrades. Mm-hmm. You know, so in the course of the film, he's only supposed to have made himself up once, and then with the rain and the physicality of the you know, sweat and everything like that, it wears off. But he also knows that he takes damage throughout the movie, and he's he uses electrical tape and rope to essentially stitch himself up and put the costume back together. And I had read that he did that himself. You know, he he'd gone to the special effects crew, the makeup guy, the costumer, or whatever. And they handed it and they started doing, he's like, no, he's like, Eric would do this himself. So therefore I'm going to do it, man. It's, it's hard for me to talk about it because I I didn't know that he was up for some of those roles that you had mentioned earlier. And I would have loved to see him in every one of them, quite honestly. Um, But his, his performance in this, he lost, I, I read somewhere 40 pounds to play this character. He was, wow. he was, he was committed to this character. You know, he studied the books. Um, he, he loved the books. You know, he was, it's almost like, a, it's almost like Ryan Reynolds before Deadpool, you know, um, he was that, you know, he wanted to be this character, you know, um, his interactions with, with Sarah are, are touching beyond belief. You can tell that, the two characters really care. The two characters, the two people really care for each other. I found it interesting that someone had said that the, the flashback scenes are all positive memories, but his performances in there are, are so good. And they're so there, there's a subtlety to them that, that makes them seem real. It makes them seem legit and, I don't know. I'll let you take over and I'll chime in here and there because you, you can probably put together sentences much more eloquently, <laughs> eloquently than I can at this moment. So No, I, I totally agree with everything that you're saying. Um, one of the interesting kind of subtle things I noticed in this viewing was uh, that I hadn't seen before was that after uh, Sarah meets Eric at his apartment and they hug and they have the moment, um, she has a patch of his white makeup on her left cheek through yeah. the rest of the movie, um, which I always thought was just, I didn't notice that. I guess I just oh, wow. it was like a trick of light or whatever, but you can actually see a patch of that white makeup on her cheek all the way through the, you know, the kidnapping in the church and, and all these other kinds of scenes. So I thought that was a nice kind of subtle touch. Um, I think I noticed I think, it in that scene, but I didn't notice it throughout the rest of the movie. Yeah. I think, I think Brandon would have been involved. Obviously he had a promising acting career ahead of him. I think, um, if I was going to predict where he would have gone from here, I think he would have been seen as um, an iconic action star that could also um, kind of propel what comics uh, would be known as or would be known for. So before this, we had Batman and Batman returns a little bit darker. Sure. Um, But I think his physicality and his emotional range uh, could have helped to show what kind of uh, depth and range these characters have that are written in these comics. Um, aside from having the the action star physicality to be able to do these kind of things, it kind of reminds me of Tom Holland in the Spider-Man movies. Like it, it mm-hmm. means a little bit something more when you know that they're actually doing their own 
their own stunts, but they're not doing it in a way that shows it off. Right. Sure. Um, yeah. So I, I, I love that about his performance. Uh, but I think it shows his abilities beyond an action star. It shows his, that he had his own legacy that he was creating beyond being uh, Bruce's son uh, with the way, you know, again, the scenes with Ernie Hudson, the scenes with Sarah, the little moments where he was being Eric and not necessarily the crow uh, were phenomenal. And it, it definitely would have uh, done more to help propel kind of the, the darker heroes um, in indie comics and probably bring more of them uh, off the shelf and onto the screen. So I'm, I'm, I'm sad that we uh, lost him, but it's phenomenal to see him um, in this and knowing that, um, that he'll be, he'll be known for this role uh, forever. So, yeah, it's, um, yeah, it, it really kind of, uh, it sucks that he had to die for this kind of legacy. Um, now, all that being said, I will honestly admit I am in the minority when it comes to his performance. I don't think it's as that good. I don't think it's bad. Mm-hmm. I don't think it's great. I think it's, it's somebody that's on their third movie. You know, I mean, that somebody that has a future and will get better. I kind of have this feeling, especially after I saw it and then saw the reviews or whatever, I kind of have this feeling that people were a little bit kinder to the whole movie because of what happened to him. And I know it's not a popular opinion and I'm used to having unpopular opinions, but even through this last watch, you know, watch through, it's like with Keanu Reeves in the Matrix. There's a lot of other people that could have done that. And I think what Brandon brought to this role was his physical ability. And I kind of wish we'd have gotten a little bit more of his martial arts, but obviously he was trying to separate himself from that and what his dad did. And fine, it's cool. And also something that bothered me a little bit more this time than it has previously was the amount of times a gun was pointed at him considering how he died. It's a little unsettling watching it over and over again. I'm like, you know, even why I said there's a lot of guns pointed at him considering what happened. I'm like, well, they can't reshoot everything because he's, you know, he's gone now. So um, I just, I don't love his performance. There's definitely scenes that are really good. I don't think he's, it's not a great performance. And I know people are going to hate on me for that. That's fine. I'm used to being hated for, for things and that's cool. I, it's a good movie. It fits with his, it's a good movie. His portrayal fits within the movie. And I see what he was going to become in this. I don't think he was a great actor yet. He was going to get there. There's scenes like you mentioned where the, you know, catches in his throat when he's saying certain things. And I think he would have only gotten better after this. And unfortunately, since somebody made a mistake or didn't check the gun and right, you know, it's unfortunate, but um, all that being said, it's, it's a, it's, it's, there's some great moments in it. And, you know, I just have that feeling that critics were nicer to the movie overall because of what happened Because you know, nobody wants to go down that road and trash the movie because <laughs> it has a 71% on IMDb for the Metascore, which seems high for a comic book movie from the nineties, but that's just my opinion. Anyway, yeah, I don't know. I, I keep contrasting it to what I saw previously with rapid fire and maybe it's the movie itself, but well, right. um, it just seems like he was, he was being given 
movies that seemed like they were a little bit more kind of standard action movie, you know, especially when you look at the trailers when it doesn't look all that right different than other action movies. But knowing that he was diving into this kind of a um, knowing that they had the possibility to be iconic, right? Um, it does feel like he has more of that range that he's exploring. Um, yeah, I think his better, I think better performances were definitely ahead of him. I think yeah. the roles were definitely ahead of him. Mm-hmm. And it would have been interesting to see him be involved in where he would eventually go, which would be uh dramatic roles that don't require any action. Yeah. Like no martial arts in the script whatsoever. We want Brandon the actor, not Bruce Lee's son. Yeah, I definitely would have se- liked to have seen him kind of emerge out of that in his later years. Yeah, agreed. So almost afraid to ask, uh do you guys have any complaints? Any, okay. All right. All right. Scott has one. Good. Yeah. Then yeah. I won't be alone yeah. in this. <laughs> yeah. I will. I will say the one thing that you know. It's. <laughs> I'm sure it's because I'm getting old, and it's not the years; it's the mileage or whatever. Um, <laughs> with this viewing, the club concert scenes um, seemed a bit much. Seemed a bit long, um, and maybe it's because I'd seen this so many times, and I was like, I don't really feel like I need to see these concerts anymore, so I'm just going to kind of <laughs> skip through them. But I was skipping through them quite a bit. Um, and even though it's a great idea to have that kind of showcase for, um, bands that not a lot of people might know, um, and give them more visibility. And they did a a great job of kind of interspersing it with other kind of action, uh, to help kind of add to the atmosphere. I did find myself kind of tired of the, the club songs. Okay. All right. What about you, John? I like Byling's character, but I don't like the fact that she is top dollars stepsister in the incestuous relationship. I, I, I like the fact that she's got this knowledge in this feel for the supernatural, but I almost feel that she could have been separated a little bit from him and been non-related. Yeah, but it just, it just makes him more of a horrible person. So. It makes him more. It definitely, <laughs> it definitely makes. It definitely makes. Him if more we're supposed like, to like him, but well, I completely agree. But I, we're supposed to hate him. So this just, I think, it just yeah, makes him more I of mean, a. I mean, it's it's creepy no matter what. It's, it's <laughs> very, it, it, it's very creepy. She doesn't. She does a really good job. So I, I, I said earlier, there's not much in this film I don't like. There's probably a few things that I would do differently, and that would be one of them. Just to. I don't know, just to separate it out a little bit because uh, the, the whole incestuous thing is just a little, a little on the creepy side for me, maybe, <laughs> you know, um, but other than that, um, I know a lot of people do not like skank. They oh, I like skank. I love skank. Skank is, skank <laughs> he is cracks me up, man. Re- he's the comic. <laughs> re- he's the guy. He reminds me of the little dog that's always hopping around spike. And the Tom and Jerry thing. <laughs> Hebert is Spike and Skank's the little dog. He's he's a low IQ. He's he's friends with these guys, or he's not even friends with them. He hangs out with these guys because the only attention he gets is the shit that they give him. Right. And they and they do give him shit. You know, um the the one puzzling thing about it is when Eric goes after Skank and Top Dollar's like, you can't have him. That kind of goes against, to, to me, it almost goes against Top Dollar's nature because I could see Top Dollar say, fuck him. You want to kill him? Kill him. I don't care. 
<laughs> you know, there's, there's no, he doesn't have any loyalty in anybody. So I don't know if that was just a ploy because his stepsister had, you know, deemed more of the mystic of what's going on or, you know, pop dollar just wanted to see what was going on. And, you know, you want him come get him type attitude, but those are, the, those are just kind of the things that I don't particularly it's the, I don't care for. It's not that I don't care for them. I don't really fully understand them. Might be a better way of saying it. All right. Now I I kind of see Top Dollar saying that only because I think he was trying to bait uh, Eric into a confrontation. You know, so because if he just says they're take him, then they just leave, and there's not that you know huge shootout uh, upstairs. So, but either way, I see your point though. All right. So here are some of my complaints. Uh, Anna Devine as Darla, uh, her performance was annoying. I, you know, I didn't buy it. I didn't feel sorry for her. I mean, I know it's kind of, I'm supposed to feel sorry for her because she's an addict, but she was still a little bit too annoying. And I don't know. I didn't, I don't know. I didn't like her performance. I'll just put it that way. Um, Detective Torres is completely pointless. Uh, he, he's just there to be that asshole cop that we don't like. But he really serves no purpose. Um, we can find out any other way that he got that Ernie Hudson's character Albright got busted. We don't need Torres to be there. Um, he doesn't add anything. He just distracts me, and I don't even wish he was on the screen at all. He's pointless. And I know it's a silly thing, but during the shootout at Top Dollars, those the sound effects for the pistols are so annoying. It's almost it's just so such a generic sound effect, and it's just so constant because he's just like you know unloading clips into all these bad guys and it's just like bang 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 and i'm like that they could have picked another sound effect because it it's just it it grates on my nerves it's just i'm like we could have better gun effects you know you know steal them from indiana jones or something his his gun sounds awesome you know but this is just it's such a cheesy gun effect and that bothers me it's a great scene but that distracts from me. I'm like anything else would have been better. And I just like mentioned before, I think some of the acting at times is just a little, you know, flat and then other people are over the top. And so those are minor things, but yeah, those are, those are the things which I know is not a lot, but those are the things I just can do without that could have been better, which isn't a lot. I know. Cause I do like the movie, but that's, that's my short list. <laughs> which is longer than both the years, <laughs> which I knew was going to happen. And that's okay. They don't bother me like they bother you. I'm not as picky about that stuff as, as you are, but I think some of that was due to budgetary limitations too. And it might've been, but I'm just saying they had all those great sound effects for all the automatic weapons, but he's up there gunning down bad guys going bang, bang. I might as well just been pew, 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 pew. So <laughs> that's just all I'm saying. Anyway, Quick impression for you. Call, call, bang, fuck, I'm dead! Give me the girl, and I'll let you walk out of here. Well, well, why don't you just give me a minute to think about that, huh?
Okay, so let's move on to favorite stuff. Uh, Scott, do you have a favorite scene? Oh, um, well, I probably can't say the boardroom standoff now because you can all you want. <laughs> really can. I love the scene. I really do. I mean, because especially Skank has that, you know, he has, or, you know, Eric has a great line. It's not a good day to be a bad guy, is it? And Skank's like, I'm not Skank, Skank's over there. I just, I, I love the scene. Good. You know, you know, the, the use of the sword. I mean, it's a, you know, it's a great scene. I just hate that sound effect. <laughs> I just don't want to remind you of it anymore. Um, I'll go. I'll go back to the uh, the pawn shop. All right. Um, it is a great I think, scene. I think that scene it was is. really well done, uh, top to bottom. Um, I even think the the end scene, the special effect where you see the the shotgun blast and the rings kind of fly out. Yeah. Um, I thought it was really well executed. Um, even the kind of menacing, like knock on the door. Um, just really well done. Um, and the, the Edgar Allan Poe reference, of course. Yeah, right. right. <laughs> um, that would probably tie with any scene involving Brandon and Ernie Hudson. I'll just say that again. Okay. Great chemistry. And I love to see them together. All right. John favorite scene. Uh, I was going to say the pawn shop as well as one of my favorite scenes. I already mentioned um, fun boy. Um, and of course the, the, the big room, big table shootout which is reminiscent like when he's under the table and he's pulling the guys under the table it's very reminiscent of batman it's like you know you can't find us and all of a sudden a hand comes up yanks the guy under the table <laughs> you know it's it's that's really cool but my i think my favorite thing is when, at the end of it when the cops come storming in and he just does the shuffle stage left off right. the scene, you know <laughs> and i had read somewhere that he was exhausted and he was just tired of filming that scene. And they did that. And that was just something he did. And they're like, screw it, leave it in. That's great. You know? (laughs) All right. Um, Mine actually is when we see Eric return to his apartment, um, which I know doesn't technically have Brandon in it uh, because I mean, they, I think I like it because everything they were able to do um, after the fact, uh, taking that, you know, removing him from the scene in the alley to put him that image inside as he walks in through the doorway and using the cracked mirror um, and inserting his reflection into that. And then, you know, him putting the makeup on, um, on this, you know, stunt double and stand in wherever you want to call it. And then the, him getting dressed and his reaction to everything he picks up and the flashbacks and the whole scene is extremely moving and it, it finishes so well with him standing in the window. And of course the lightning flash, which we give that, you know, superimposed image of Brandon's face on the double. And if you don't know what happened, like if I was to have my daughter watch that scene, she would have no idea that that actor is not him. And to be done in 94 that well, that's a testament to what they were able to do. So that for that reason, and the fact that it's it's a very emotional scene, is it's one it's the reason it's my favorite scene in the movie. Yeah, so. I was actually surprised to see how much of that was was using that technology and was not Brandon. Yeah, because I yeah. didn't I hadn't until recently kind of studying for this movie seen the breakdown of which scenes they had to um have somebody stand in, especially that lightning flash. Yeah, I'm very surprised to see that was wasn't actually him. Yeah, um, that's it. 
they did a good. I mean, and then the chase scene through the, the across the rooftops is obviously a stunt double because you never see his face. Um, when he jumps out of the car, you know, there's no there's no conversation between him and Ernie Hudson, so obviously it's a stunt double. But if now that we we know the situation and you're paying attention, you can kind of pick out the scenes. But right. at that time, just watching the movie, they it, it was done so well that it it doesn't it's seamless, you know. Yeah, I did in this viewing of it. It was interesting that in that scene, I was paying attention to or trying to kind of read into um, why he puts the makeup on at all. Because if he had come back as any other character, it would be maybe a little bit more um, unsettling to T-Bird's gang to see this person that they knew that they killed a year ago come back. But he smashes the reflection and he covers his entire face in this new persona um, after being you know, flashed with all these memories. It's almost like he didn't want to see himself anymore. He didn't want to be subjected to you know the the reminder of that that pain in that life and becoming somebody else with a very subtle change. I mean, arguably he puts on all his band clothes, so it's not like he creates a completely different costume. Right. Um, puts on the face makeup and eventually starts a a giant trend in long leather jackets by <laughs> taking tin tins. Um, it was just interesting, maybe like the thinking behind like why he felt he need needed to to become that to take that face on i think it's it, there's there's a subtlety to it as well is that at that point he's not he's not eric anymore but as right. i stated you know the makeup starts to wear off throughout the course of the movie so by the end of the movie he is eric again and that's really right. subtle in that and i never thought about that really in that context until you just said that but yeah yeah well, and toward the end of the movie, it's more about, um, you know, T-Bird's gang is eliminated and it's more about saving Sarah, exactly. which is maybe what it was all about all along. And that's a little bit more personal to him. Um, yeah, I think that was just well done. Okay. Uh, favorite character, John. Eric. That's a cop out, but Eric is, my favorite. <laughs> Eric is my favorite character. If I have to pick one that's not Eric, um probably Sarah or Albrecht. And then I, I do like Gideon. Gideon is funny as a pawn shop owner. Um, <laughs> the performance is great. It's, he doesn't have a big, big role in the movie, but he he's great at, it. he's just this old cantankerous. I don't take shit from anybody. Pawn shop owner. Right. He does it really well. <laughs> All right, Scott. Mm. It's, it's, it's really hard to choose. Um, I'd probably have the same top three. Um, oh, I'm compelled to give it to Sarah as much as I want to give it to officer Albrecht. I think he's a, a great character and adds a lot to the movie. Um, I just loved seeing um, what Sarah added to it in this latest showing. Um, I'm going with uh, Ernie Hudson Albrecht, you know, uh, he's, He's so much fun throughout the movie and um, where Sarah's kind of the almost the innocent, the, the kind of the light that Eric still needs. Uh, Ernie's character, Albrecht's character is uh, kind of our moral barometer. You know, he's, he's the guy that's doing what he's the right, doing the right thing. You know what I mean? He yeah. stays yeah. with Shelly at the hospital. You know, he's, uh, 
he's a beat cop in a crappy town, you know, has a shitty bosses, but yeah, he's still a good person. So I like, I like him for that reason. Any final words before we move on to our rating? Nope. Nope. All right. Rating choices. Never again. Stream it. Buy it used. Buy it new or 4K Blu-ray. John, what's your rating? I would say buy it 4K Blu-ray, but it's only available in Japan at the moment. I know. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I know. If you have the means and you have a player that will play Japanese region (laughs) discs, then by all means, do it. All right, Scott. Yeah, same. 4K Blu-ray. Um, I'd rather have access to, you know, uh, documentaries and features and parallels between the book and commentaries and, and all this other kind of stuff. So I'd say that's definitely the way to go. All right. I, I say we three start a petition and get the black and white version released. Yeah. Yes. With different bullet sound effects for Dayton. And then you <laughs> I'd still buy it. Um, I will say uh, I do not love it as much as you guys do, but I'm going to give it a buy it new, um, which I did recently. It's a good movie. It's definitely a quality comic book movie. It's a quality movie on its own. Um, I have problems with it, but it's a, it's a very good movie and it's worth seeing. And it will, um, unfortunately, uh, Brandon had to die for it to uh, stay in our pop culture. I think had he lived, it might've, fallen by the wayside because he would have replaced it with other movies um so take that for what it's worth but uh i'm giving it a bite new yeah it's interesting like if um if if i were to introduce it to somebody new like if i was going to introduce it to one of my sons or something like that i would probably serve it up to them as a as a high quality comic book film a very early stage of what that is and then talk about uh, Brandon's passing to make to see if that would you know kind of color their perception of it because I definitely think it stands um, on its own yeah. without that background but it's so well known it's hard to not have that background you know what I mean yeah to, to your point Dayton you said he would have replaced it with other movies well from my understanding a couple of the movies he would have replaced it with were sequels to this because he was signed I think to another movie in this franchise the plan was to do a sequel of this and they were working on a way to bring eric back um while they were filming this so the and the cultural impact one of the one of the things i was reading is like you know it reached out you know yeah you couldn't walk into a hot topic or a spencer's without seeing a ton of crow shit everywhere Mm -hmm. um no, no pun intended but um also you know it crossed over into like it crossed over into wrestling of all things yeah you had that character sting that reinvent reinvented himself from this fluorescent face painted ultimate warrior ripoff to a crow ripoff well like i said does that all happen if he lives i think it might have as horrible as it is a series of events took place that put this movie into our pop culture um and i think like i said i kind of get the feeling that had he lived, um, it wouldn't have had, it would, certainly would have made its money back like it did. And I don't think it would have filled the public consciousness as it has. So knowing how big Marvel and DC, um, well, they weren't necessarily as big as they are now because <laughs> Marvel had tried to make movies like Howard the Duck. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah marvel was bankrupt at this time if i'm not mistaken <laughs> right and yeah. dc um was on the, the road to redemption from superman 4 quest for peace by <laughs> making things like batman and batman returns but um even as dark horse was starting to put movies out like the mask um it was still a pretty big comic company versus something like caliber press so I feel like this was getting a lot of indie buzz because it was such a, you know, a distant pull from the shelf that was being made into a, a major motion picture uh, that it would have drummed up a lot of, that was drumming up a lot of interest just for that. Aside from the fact that it had, you know, the great design of the character and, and a lot of, a lot of buzz around it. Um, I definitely think it was going to be the start of a trend of something more. Mm-hmm. Um, it wouldn't really, you know, get its feet under it for a little while uh looking at you judge dread um Ugh. but why do you have to keep bringing up that movie <laughs> <laughs> stop because it uh, because it took so long to get carl urban to get it just oh. perfect but yeah that's such a great that's a great movie thank you judge yeah. stallone i, I uh, <laughs> nope <laughs> <laughs> it's schneider tastic uh, stop <laughs> <laughs> Anything else before before we say goodbye? Nope. Nope. Thanks for joining us to talk about it. This is this is a great discussion. Um, it's great to get back into this movie after so long, and to it's like a time capsule back to back to ninety four. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it really is. It's nice to revisit the movie and also revisit the soundtrack. So, um, yeah, 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 and I think it, I, I think it ages really well. Oh yeah, I, I, I really, yeah, I really do. I, yeah, I don't think it's not one of those you put in and go, you know, oh, it's an old movie. It doesn't, yeah, it doesn't feel that way because, and I think it's because of the comic book look that they got across. Exactly. It, it doesn't, exactly. it doesn't feel like it's 1990 something or 1980 something or whatever. It, it has, uh, it works. So, yeah. you know, kind of like that, like I said, like the Gotham City in Tim Burton's Batman, it doesn't really have a time period. So, all right. Thank you, John. Sure. Thank you. Thank you, Scott. Thank you, as always. And thank the listeners for stopping by. Listen to what we have to say about uh, The Crow. Uh, do us a favor, like, follow, subscribe, rate, and review on your podcast app of choice. Uh, reach out to us on social media, on Twitter at DockingBase77Pod, on Facebook at DockingBase77Podcast, and email DockingBase77Podcast at gmail.com. You can also help support the show at Patreon. For as little as $1 a month, you can help offset the cost of the production of this podcast. Upcoming episode, come back next week. John will be back next week. And returning back to the podcast, we have Jewel Peach. We will be discussing Shaun of the Dead versus Zombieland. Do yourself a favor, watch more movies. And remember, physical media is better than streaming. The Ducking Bay 77 podcast is produced and edited by Dayton Johnson, recorded with Rode Pod mics, the Zoom Pod Track P4, and edited on Audacity. Opening music provided by Eric Jason Brock. You can find him on YouTube and Bandcamp. Thank you for listening. You're going to risk our lives for a Twinkie? There's a box of Twinkies in that grocery store. Not just any box of Twinkies. The last box of Twinkies that anyone will enjoy in the whole universe.
Believe it or not, Twinkies have an expiration date. Someday very soon, life's little Twinkie gauge is gonna go empty. Time to nut up or shut up. <laughs>